Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add two new fellows to our team. We are thrilled to be adding these positions. We've got so much great content in the pipeline that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. I'm talking big time projects that are going to make a big impact on surgical education. We've got specialty oral board review, medical student education, digital education research, and a trauma surgery video atlas, just to name a few. We're looking for a couple of enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns and spearhead one of these major projects, not to mention help with the podcast, video, and other ongoing, exciting, behind-the-knife goodness. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2022 and ending June 2024. Only residents beginning their two-year research time will be considered, and the residents' institutions and the mentor must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due May 25th. Hi, all you BTK fans. It's Scott, live from Tampa, just finishing up Askars 2022. So first of all, it was great to see the energy down here with everybody being back together. And we're going to go a little bit old school today. We're going to give you a highlights episode from a coverage from that. So we're going to cover some of the big six topics, cancer, anal rectal, pelvic floor disease, diverticulitis, IBD, all of it going to give updates on this. We've got Sharon Stein, who is the program director for the entire meeting, going to give an overview. Aaron King Mullins going to talk a little bit about the new DEI initiatives that are happening. And of course, Shreya is going to kind of round it out. And then John Abelson uh, from Leahy is going to go ahead and give you a little bit more specifics in depth in terms of the big six. So super excited that you could join us. And uh, it was a great event and it was wonderful to be back in person. So from all of us to all of you, dominate the day. Hi, Behind the Knife listeners, this is Shreya Gupta, along with Dr. Jonathan Abelson. We are here giving you some highlights from ASCRS in Tampa, Florida. We hope you enjoy it. We'll start this episode by discussing the Joint Symposium on Multidisciplinary Treatment of Inflammatory Bowel Disease. This was a symposium that was moderated by our very own uh, frequent flyer on the Behind the Knife podcast, Dr. Jonathan Abelson. As we know, he's a staff surgeon and an assistant professor at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center, Tufts University. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jonathan Abelson. Great. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be back with the team. So this was a a really interesting opportunity that the program chairs for this year's meeting gave to some of the junior staff to be able to have a seat at the podium, which we might not otherwise have access to. And so there were a number of folks in sort of my cohort of fellows who were given the opportunity to live tweet the presentations by some of the experts. Um, So I'll just provide a couple of the the highlights from the session, a number of great presentations sort of describing where we were and where we've been with IBD management, and then you know, where are we going in the future and what are ways that we can take care of our patients better? So certainly one of the hot topics these days is how do you you manage the mesentery in Crohn's disease? And so we had a very nice presentation um, from Dr. Anthony DeBuck-Van Overstraten from Toronto talking about 
the role of the mesentery in Crohn's disease. And we do have some data that say or show us that there's really no difference in disease recurrence for Crohn's disease if you have positive or negative resection margins. And even with the type of anastomosis, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And I'll just say in terms of the future, there are a couple of randomized controlled trials that we're waiting for the results from. So one is the SPARES trial, the other one's the Meerkat uh, trial. And Dr. Amy Leitner out of Cleveland Clinic is you know, one of the PIs on that, on that, on that study. And so I think this will certainly be an area of uh, research going forward. Then we had Dr. Fikera. So Dr. Fikera is coming to us from Baylor, uh, talking to us about the Kono S anastomosis. And, you know, for those of you who are not aware of that as a surgical anastomosis, I would highly encourage you to uh, take a look at some of the published randomized controlled trials looking at that anastomosis. And, and he really sort of went through the technical details of how you actually perform the Kono S anastomosis. And interestingly, there is no S in the anastomosis. So that was a little uh, tidbit that was helpful for me to learn. But basically, trials have shown that it's a safe anastomosis uh, and has promising results in terms of decreased recurrence. Then we had Dr. Karen Zagian uh, coming from Los Angeles. And you know, this really highlighted what we should be doing better in terms of how we're counseling our patients who are undergoing J-Pouch operation. And we'll talk about, um, you know, surgical options for J-Pouch shortly, but sexual dysfunction and infertility is, is really exceedingly common, unfortunately. And in some studies can affect up to 60% of women postoperatively. And so there really needs to be more discussion about this, counseling about this, and really consideration for how do we address this and make this better in the future. A couple of additional highlights from the talk, we had Dr. Mukta Crane coming to us from Seattle, Washington, um, you know, talking to us about how do you manage dysplasia in ulcerative colitis. This is an ongoing debate and ongoing discussion. We have some great um, updated clinical practice guidelines from ASCRS that really take you through the algorithm. Um, you know, and I think it's important to make, make sure you're noting, is this a resectable lesion or not? And there's a lot of sort of branch points in that algorithm. And Dr. Crane did a very nice job of summarizing that uh, for us. Dr. Nell Patel from New Brunswick, New Jersey, talked to us a little bit about prehabilitation, a certainly a very hot topic uh, in surgery in general. And then finally, we had Dr. David Stewart just sort of talking to us about the role of biologic therapy um, uh, in patients with IBD. And really one of the main conclusions that Dr. Stewart, you know, brought to the group is that, you know, you shouldn't delay an operation if a patient needs an operation because they're on biologic therapy. And, you know, we pay so much attention to what's the washout period and okay, has it been four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks? Is it in Tivio? Is it Stellara? If the patient needs an operation, they need an operation and don't delay that uh, necessarily, uh, and allow them to get worse clinically just to wait for a washout period. Obviously, these are very complicated uh, topics, and so there's nothing necessarily set in stone, um, but those were some uh, some key highlights from the session. Piggybacking off the biologics episode, uh, thing that you mentioned, a really good study that was mentioned by Dr. Stefan Holobar from Cleveland Clinic was one of the first uh, studies to 
look at biologics before surgery for IBD and if they are associated with overall infectious complications, surgical site infections, or anastomotic leak. And what they claimed was that to date, uh, no study has adequately been powered or has been able to demonstrate that biologics are in any way, shape, or form related or associated to anastomotic leaks. Their study um, talked about that biologics within the two months of surgery were not independently associated with post-operative infections or leaks. And this is the study um, that is one of the largest studies today that is looking at this topic. And I think it's going to be really interesting um, to see when this study comes out to read into the the methods and their analysis and really answer that question, like you mentioned, um, on what type of biologic and when do you stop and how do you counsel patients in the perioperative period. So one of the other topics that is quite um, a hot topic is talking about the modified two-stage approach. Um, Dr. Abelson, can you get shed some light on what it means, um, what it means to the general surgeon, what does it mean to a patient, and uh, what is it, and how, uh, what are some of the big highlights and technical key points for this topic? Absolutely. So I think it's, it, it is really important for all trainees to be aware of the terminology when we talk about one stage, two stage, three stage for total proctocolectomy with restorative J-pouch procedure. Um, and, and it can get confusing because there's a lot of different ways you can talk about it. But basically, you know, one stage, you are removing the entire colon and rectum, creating a J-pouch, performing the anastomosis, and then that's it. There's no proximal diversion. And this is highly, highly unlikely to be done in the adult population. Sometimes the pediatric surgery folks will do that in patients with FAP. Um, so you're, you're not likely to see that in the adult population. A classic two-stage approach, you do the total proctocolectomy, you create a J-pouch, you do the anastomosis, and then you do a diverting loop ileostomy that's usually in place for about three months or so make sure that they recover well from surgery, and then reverse the ileostomy. The three-stage, and this is going to be for your patients who come in quite sick, emergently, are on biologics, are on steroids, have an albumin of two, uh, and you're going to start with doing a total abdominal colectomy. That's the first stage, let them recover. Second stage, proctectomy, J-pouch anastomosis with diverting loop ileostomy. Then third stage, once they've recovered from that, reverse the ileostomy. So a a modified two-stage, you're doing a total abdominal colectomy as sort of first operation with an end ileostomy. And then your second stage is a proctectomy with a J-pouch without any proximal diversion. And so the, you know, the proposition there is you're only doing two operations. So in general, if you can get away with doing two surgeries as opposed to three, that's going to be better for the patient. The longer time that you have an ileostomy certainly sets you up for complications related to the ileostomy, like readmission due to dehydration, acute kidney injury. I think the main concern that I think a lot of folks have with this approach 
is that you are not doing a diverting loop ileostomy at the time of J-pouch and doing your anastomosis. And this can be concerning because we, we know that proximal diversion does not necessarily prevent anastomotic leak, but it can decrease the clinical consequences. And the clinical consequences of a leak from a low pelvic anastomosis can be quite severe. And so not having that proximal ileostomy can be setting the patient up for potential issues postoperatively. You know, one of the, um, you know, comments, you know, or teachings from Dr. Schetz that we hear here, here at Leahy is that the restorative proctocolectomy with a J pouch is an operation that is purely based on quality of life and functional preference. And so we are here to try and make patients quality of life as good as it possibly can be. And so they have your first shot as your best shot to give someone a good functioning, long lasting J pouch. And so the concern is if you don't divert, then that can really create issues in terms of their long-term function if they have a leak. The next topic we are going to be discussing is about rectal cancer and providing you with some highlights on how to take care of patients with rectal cancer. One of the symposiums that we were able to attend was by Dr. Matt Kaladi from Ohio State, and he mentioned some of the key components of what goals of care uh, should be kept in mind when taking care of a patient with rectal cancer. And the top four is curative, um, having no local recurrence, quality of life, and finally, the sphincter preservation. The changing paradigms in rectal cancer is that once you have rectal clinical staging based on endoscopy, as well as radiographic imaging, such as MRI, you go ahead and do total neoadjuvant therapy. You then follow that up with and assessing their response. They either have residual tumor, which leads them down the path of surgery, or they are falling under the CCR, which is the complete clinical response. And at that point, we have the option of non-operative management. And this is something that we'll bring up again. So for rectal cancer, multimodality treatment is already changing. The TNT approach that we will talk a little bit more about is safe and it's effective. And they, it, it has some advantages over the traditional approaches of surgery. And there are several different paradigms, and this should be tailored um, to the management of e, e, the, you know, tailor the management to the individual and their um, goals of quality of life. And Dr. Abelson, could you talk to us a little bit more about what is the new um, in TNT approach? for rectal cancer. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And again, this is a really important area to make sure that you are paying attention to the vocabulary and the terminology. Uh, So when we talk about TNT, this is total neoadjuvant therapy. And so there was an organ preservation symposium led by Dr. Julio Garcia Aguilar at a Memorial Sloan Kettering and really that, you know, we sort of highlighted the benefits of TNT, which is that it improves treatment compliance, ensures efficacy. There's earlier treatment of subclinical micrometastasis as opposed to 
waiting to give systemic chemotherapy after surgery. It enhances the response of the primary tumor, and it reduces the time that the patient has an ileostomy, which we mentioned before is super important. Now, when we talk about terminology, it's important to be aware of two different approaches. So one is consolidation chemotherapy, and the other one is induction chemotherapy. This all has to do with the timing of chemotherapy related to when they received radiation therapy. So consolidation chemotherapy means that they start with radiation therapy and then they get systemic chemotherapy. Induction chemotherapy means that you are starting with systemic chemotherapy and then giving radiation therapy. And again, this is all prior to surgery. Now, we were fortunate at this meeting to hear the results of the OPERA trial. And so this is organ preservation in patients with rectal adenocarcinoma. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology just at the end of April of 2022. And this trial, again, led by Dr. Julio Garcia Aguilar, tested which approach would have the best efficacy in terms of organ preservation and which one would be the best in terms of overall survival. And really what they found in the study is that there is no difference in disease-free survival at three years between each group. So if you're looking at overall or rather disease-free survival, you can choose either approach. However, what they found is that the consolidation approach, meaning you're starting again with radiation therapy and then systemic chemotherapy, does result in a higher rate of organ preservation compared to just starting with chemotherapy and then radiation therapy. And so for, for those of us who are interested in the non-operative management and sort of a watch and wait policy, uh, these data are incredibly valuable so that we can provide important counseling for our patients. Excellent summary, Dr. Abelson. There are two questions that I have uh, following. Could you talk about what comprises of complete clinical response, followed by when do you assess? What is the timing of assessing for CCR following total neoadjuvant therapy like you just discussed? Sure. So classically, there are three criteria that you need to meet in order to be able to say a patient has had a complete clinical response exam via digital rectal exam. So you need to be able to feel it. And this needs to be normal, no palpable tumor. Endoscopic assessment. And classically, you want to see a white, yellow, flat scar with telangiectasias, no ulcer, no nodularity. And then finally is MRI. And during this session, we had a a very nice talk from Dr. Mark Golub, a radiologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, talking to us about some of the limitations and challenges of using MRI to restage. However, in general, we want to see only a dark T2 signal due to fibrosis, no signal on DWI, and no visible lymphadenopathy. And so those are the three criteria you need to have, and those are the descriptions. And then there are categories of near-complete response and then incomplete response um, and so, again, I think if it's something that you want to incorporate into your practice, you need to be super clear about documenting each one of those uh, findings for your patient. Regarding the timing of when you do the reassessment, a lot of variability with this, honestly. And so I think, um, you know, there's some folks who are doing restaging in between 
chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, you know, make sure there's not tumor progression, which is incredibly rare. Um, but I do think we can use the opera trial to provide some backbone in terms of this is what we should be doing. And basically in their study, total neoadjuvant therapy was administered over the course of 24 to 26 weeks. And they were not doing any definitive CT scans or MRIs or rectal exams in between those. They were then doing assessment for response about eight weeks following completion of therapy. Um, And then the final decision for the response was usually about 32 to 38 weeks after completion of total neoadjuvant therapy. You know, one, one important piece of information that we learned from the the group in Brazil is that sometimes it takes a long time after radiation therapy to really see the full results. And so it can be up to 20 weeks uh, after completion of treatment for you to really finally see whether or not you've had a clinical complete response or not. Though obviously that takes a lot of patience and um, some comfortability with living with uncertainty, which some of us as doctors and surgeons might have difficulty with, let alone the actual patient. But I think following the OPERA trial in terms of the timeline outlined uh, is a a good place to start. Excellent. And you said that this paper just came out in April of 2022. So definitely something worth reading for all our listeners out there. The next topic that we wanted to discuss was the surgical management of stage four colorectal cancer. We had an excellent 10-minute expert talk by Dr. Najia Mahmood, who's talked about surgical management of stage four colon cancer. And usually these patients are presenting in a critical obstruction that requires rapid intervention. And she broke it down very carefully into three intervention options. The first being diversion. And this is minimally invasive. You can do this as distal as possible and do not create closed loop obstructions. If you do have large hepatic disease burden, this is your go-to intervention. The next intervention that you have is stent, and this is a bridge to surgery only. Long-term palliation is not in favor of placing a stent. And this is mostly for sigmoid colon colon cancers and rectal colon cancers, as well as people, patients who have small hepatic disease burden. The third option that you have is resection, and this is for uh, resecting the colon only. If you do have small or even large hepatic disease burden, or your primary is in the right or transverse colon, resection is an option. However, you do need a very rapid intervention and um, very quick multidisciplinary approach to these patients as they are um, presenting in what we call a critical obstruction window um, most of the times. Dr. Abelson, anything to add that is um, to the clinical management and surgical management of colon cancers? Yeah, I think, I think this is, it's a very difficult decision to make. And I think a lot of this, a lot of these decisions can be institution dependent. So for example, here at Leahy, the gastroenterology team puts in the colonic stents. I know down at Ochsner, 
in New Orleans, Dr. Whitlow is putting in stents himself. So a colorectal surgeon putting in their own stents. And so, you know, it, it just brings up interesting, you know, where is everybody coming from in terms of what are our ultimate goals for treating the patient? You know, just a couple of comments that I'll make. I think, I think classically, yes, stents are used as bridge to surgery, meaning you do a stent uh, and then surgery, you know, on average seven to 14 days later. And the goal of this is to avoid an ostomy. However, I do think that there can be a role for a palliative stent where that is the destination therapy for someone who has life expectancy, let's say less than six months. Now, our, our drugs for colon cancer are so good that, you know, is anyone's prognosis less than six months with metastatic cancer? That's debatable, right? And especially with immunotherapy coming on board. Um, and then I think the final point I'll make is that, you know, the, the technical success again, depends on who's the operator and institutional preference. And so, um, you know, you can certainly put in stents at the splenic flexure, although it's not going to be as easy as let's say the descending colon. I think for, you know, more distal lesions, you know, you have to be careful not to get too distal because patients can develop some significant tenesmus associated with a distal stent. So difficult conversations, totally agree, needs to be multidisciplinary approach. And you're absolutely right, needs to be done in an expeditious fashion. One of the other big topics in colon and rectal surgery is inherited colorectal cancers. And one of the big topics in that is the Lynch syndrome. We had the pleasure of sitting in on a nice symposium by Dr. Jill Genua, who presented her data on Lynch syndrome and the gene-specific um, studies that they, have, they are looking at. She mentioned Dr. Kaledi's paper that was published in 2010 that lists the risk of subsequent carcinoma in a segmental colectomy versus total abdominal colectomy for Lynch syndrome. And this was about 15 to 25% in a segmental resection versus zero to 8% in a total abdominal colectomy. So definitely falls down. However, looking and learning more about Lynch syndrome, we know that it is no longer one entity. And the management of Lynch syndrome has to be gene specific and not a one size fits all. There are revised guidelines that are coming that are very much gene specific. And the things that everyone who is seeing a patient with Lynch syndrome should know is that the age sex, as well as the familial cancer burden, really modify um, and stratify the risk of the patient having carcinomas and should really help you dictate what kind of cancer resections they are offered. Dr. Abelson, can you shed uh, some more light on um, Lynch syndrome and the available cancer operations um, that are available to the patients and how do you go about counseling them? Yeah. And I would say this is, it can be a, a confusing topic. Uh, fortunately, I'll give a little shout out on behind the knife for behind the knife. Uh, there was a recent episode from the colorectal group in Mount Montreal that published a, a, a podcast on clinical challenges in colorectal surgery, Lynch syndrome. So this is episode 488 
on May 5th. So you can listen to that. It's a great episode and they really go through a lot of the genetics behind it and different management options. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a challenging conversation, but I think it's really important to lay out for the patient what the risks are of specific cancers. And I think ultimately it has to be a, you know, shared decision-making. Um, you know, are you going to remove the entire colon for a patient knowing that that might impact quality of life and bowel function? Although truthfully, perhaps if you leave a little bit of sigmoid colon, then actually their bowel function might not be, uh, you know, so terrible and only maybe two to three bowel movements a day. Um, you know, and then also considering, you know, like you, like you said, you know, does this patient have a uterus and ovaries and how old are they? Right. And so are you going to be doing a THBSO at the same time? Um, so I, you know, a lot more information to come. And, and I think, as you said, hopefully we'll have more directed information about someone's exact risk. But I think right now it's really presenting the patient with the data we have and say, how would you like to move forward? The last and final segment of this episode, we're going to be discussing two common pitfalls that everyone in general surgery has come across at one point in their careers. The first one is venous thromboembolisms. There was a great paper that, that was presented as an abstract from the group in Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where they talked about where and when VTE occurs in surgery for IBD. And some of their main takeaways from this, uh, from this session was that it is in the first 30 days that VTE risk is at the highest. And they also mentioned that it correlates per their data on how extensive the surgery is. So this is a paper that I would definitely be looking forward to when it gets published with their, all their details and results. But something to keep in mind that the first 30 days after a big operation for IBD is the highest uh, chance of highest risk of having a VTE and hence prophylaxis is definitely something that has to be considered in the management for these patients. The second pitfall we're going to be discussing is anastomotic leaks. Uh, Dr. Abelson, would you like to shed some light on what were some of the things that were mentioned at the conference about anastomotic leaks? Yeah, th and this was a really a, a great session. Entitled uh, In Search of the Holy Grail Prevention and Treatment of Anastomotic Leaks. And the session was run by Dr. Hyman, so past president of ASCRS, and then um, Alexander Hawkins, colorectal surgeon down at Vanderbilt. Um, and so, you know, they, they went through a number of different strategies to prevent anastomotic leak, as well as how do you manage it once it's happened. So, um, uh, Dorna Jafari, so colorectal surgeon at uh, Weill Cornell, talked about the role of ICG uh, and really her take-home points were that, you know, if you're a high volume surgeon, you probably don't need ICG. You have the experience to be able to tell, okay, this anastomosis has good perfusion or it doesn't. Um, it's cheap and it's becoming more ubiquitous in the operating room. And so 
you know, in her view, it might have a role if you're in a reoperative situation or you're, you're dealing with watershed areas, or if you're purely intracorporeal and perhaps you can't palpate uh, a marginal artery. Um, so just like a lot of other things in medicine and surgery, it's a tool. And so use it if you need it, but it's probably not necessary for every single case. Um, you know, one of the other really interesting talks, and this is something I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing more research down the road, was from Dr. Ben Shogan. So Ben Shogan's a colorectal surgeon at University of Chicago, talking about the role of the microbiome. And, you know, he, sp he spent a fair amount of time talking about the role of collagenase producing organisms, and, and they do likely play a role in an asthmatic leak. Uh, you know, it's likely that mechanical bowel prep and oral antibiotics decrease the burden of collagenase producing organisms in most patients, but not everybody. There's some suggestion that perioperative diet changes can stabilize the microbiome, and that might be a novel strategy to prevent anastomotic leak. Uh, but when we really tried to pin them down, it's, it's probably another five to 10 years before we have a definitive insight into if you take this uh, you know, preoperative drink that will decrease your anastomotic leak rate by 25% or 50%. And then I would say one of the other presentations that I, I really enjoyed, and this is, I'm a little biased because I got to work with him, but Dr. Garrett Nash is a colorectal surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, and he talked about anastomotic salvage, and he talked a lot about the use of endo sponges uh, and how you use them to treat anastomotic leak. You know, and I think some of the takeaways for him, um, you know, anastomotic salvage is probably about 50% in most series. And, and, you know, he describes their experience using endo sponges. So these are typically uh, changed every two to three days, sometimes up to five days, um, really always done in the operating room, uh, not in a clinic setting, as he described during his talk. Um, and so that's a useful uh, option to try to get that leak cavity to really scar down and heal on a more expeditious fashion. And that's a wrap from Behind the Knife covering ASCRS from here in Tampa. We brought to you some big highlights talking about IBD and big things in rectal cancer, colon cancer, and some of the common pitfalls that we see as general surgeons out there. We hope you enjoyed our coverage and most of these sessions are going to be on demand. If you have registered for the conference will be available if you need more information. The, our next episode from ASCRS is going to be interviews from Dr. Sharon Stein and Dr. Aaron King Mullins. So stay, stay tuned. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.